Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as we kick off another important week for global markets, U.S. politics, as well as the fight to protect our planet. The opening ceremony at the UN Climate Conference COP27 began with a stark warning from the UN Secretary General saying we're on a, quote, highway to climate hell. Wow, the challenges only exacerbated, of course, by the spending splurge during the COVID pandemic and the energy crisis following the war in Ukraine. Climate justice, though, too, in the spotlight. With developing nations hard hit by the global warming crisis, they say they did not create and are asking the industrialized world for billions of dollars in compensation to help them adapt. We can't separate the burden, of course, of climate change, too, on global health systems. We'll hear from Dr. Vanessa Kerry, the co-founder and CEO of Seed Global Health, who says the medical community has barely begun to plan for the climate emergencies to come. In the meantime, the market climate cautious after last week's sharp losses and with political risk, of course, ahead with the US midterm elections. Polls show control of the Senate still up for grabs. Investors hoping above all, I think, for a clean and quick outcome. And tech troubles remain in the spotlight too after the Nasdaq's 5% tumble last week. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Meta, the parent company of Facebook, is about to lay off thousands of workers as the company grapples with a serious advertising sales slowdown and, of course, growing uncertainty over its metaverse moonshot spending, as we've discussed on the show. Now, add to that Apple warning of an iPhone delivery pressures as uh, driven by China's COVID restrictions at the Foxconn manufacturing plant. We don't really get a sense yet of the scale of that. But in the meantime, Asia's higher, even as China pushes back on speculation that those zero COVID policies might soon ease. Goldman Sachs today saying Beijing is still, quote, months away from any zero COVID walk back. So a busy show as always. Let's begin with the latest from the COP27 summit in Egypt. And Becky Anderson is there for us. Becky, great to have you with us. And I think the UN Secretary General laid out the scale of the challenge really well. He did, absolutely. This, the latest instalment in the global effort to flight climate change. The meeting underway here in Sharm el-Sheikh. And as you rightly pointed out, it kicked off with a grim warning from the head of the United Nations here at COP27. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Well, let's be very clear here. This is a meeting hosted by Egypt, which is set to highlight the very real challenges faced 
by the global south in adapting to and mitigating the effects of climate change. Because let's be clear, just forcing change on poorer countries won't work without providing financing to catalyse a real transition to cleaner energy. There is also the very thorny and contentious issue of how to compensate poorer countries for the loss and damage of climate change and Pakistan, no better example uh, of uh, that. Uh, we've seen obviously the enormous impact of the, uh, the uh, floods um, just this summer. I want to start though with Eleni who's with me here because South Africa is a, an in incredibly good example of the sort of impact that change as we pivot from um, dirty energy to clean energy can have on a country and its population. And, and to be honest, Becky, I think the biggest news out of COP26 was South Africa's commitment to decommission coal-fired power stations and to move away from coal. Eight and a half billion dollars was pledged last year. Now, you know, the question is, how is that money going to be implemented? That's always the problem, is actually getting the money on the ground. I grew up in a coal mining town in South Africa. Everyone in my orbit was in some way exposed to the coal mining industry. I went back to speak to the coal miners to see their reality, because it might be a climate emergency, which we all face, but for them, it's a question of survival today. A community living in the shadows of power lines with no access to the electricity that towers above them. Water that arrives in trucks and using coal as their main source of energy. There's no other way you can't do anything. Paraffin is expensive, gas is expensive. Then after chopping... For Martha, everything comes from this coal stove. Their food, heat and the dirty air they breathe. Some of them, they've got TB and asthma because we're using this. Her home, a microcosm of South Africa's dilemma, an abundance of coal in the most unequal country in the world that's dealing with a crippling power crisis, 34% unemployment, with the potential of cleaner sources of energy. For many like Martha living here, the thought of abandoning coal means more economic hardship going to be paid. I don't want to lie. Many people, they've lost their job because of those contracts. We're in Whitbank, known as Emalachleni. It means the place of coal in the Nguni language. This is also where I grew up. Mining has been going on here since 1890. Greenpeace says it's the most polluted place on earth. The Mpumalanga province has the world's highest nitrogen dioxide levels. I wish you could smell this. It's sulfur. It's rotten egg. This is how you know you've arrived in Whitbank. My first stop, the National Union of Mine Workers offices. We can say 80%, if not 90, are, are working at the mines. 90% of South Africa's electricity comes from coal. The majority of power stations and mines are here in Mpumalanga. Now, the wheels of change are turning. During COP26, South Africa committed to transitioning away from coal. The country's Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy has an ominous warning for the fate of 10 towns. Those are the homes of the coal mining uh, uh, belt, with, uh, which is a home of a number of power stations. And if you can just switch it off once, 
that, that means you've got a coast region. It is the end of an era for Kamati Power Station that was built in the early 1960s and it is the first of South Africa's aging coal-fired power plants to be decommissioned. By the time you see this, it'll be completely switched off. My dad works at the ESCO. Angel Mokwena is dealing with the uncertainty firsthand. How does it feel that your father might lose his job? Are you scared? Mm, if he doesn't work, who's going to provide for us? As Kamati employees leave the plant on its final days, they do so knowing they will also be left jobless. When ESCOM closed, everything is finished. ESCOM is repurposing Kamati to solar and wind with no start date announced. Just transition. Do you understand what that means? No, not in the actual fact. I don't understand. They didn't tell you they at the mines, no, the ESCOM, nothing? Not anyone came. Do you know that the coal mining industry is going to be over? No, we didn't know. Do you understand that South Africa is trying to transition out of coal? I haven't had anything yet. The West's hypocrisy when it comes to refiring up coal plants because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine hasn't gone unnoticed. We are not uh, foreign to green energy, but we are saying it is premature for us to move to green energy. The people living here face a stark future. They can literally smell, taste and touch the danger all around them. But can they survive if it is taken away? Will they be replaced by renewables? Eleni uh, reporting them. She's with me here um, at COP. There's a very basic question here. Can you replace the jobs lost in the coal industry by those in clean energy? It's such an important question. It's probably the most mm. important question for people that I spoke to. And some of them, as you saw, had never heard of the transition away mm. from coal. I spoke to one coal mining CEO that is investing in renewables, and he says, we have to be realistic. It's not doable. One mm. for one is not doable. The multiplier effect of the coal mining industry is enormous. So you've got the coal mines feeding coal into the coal-fired power plants. It's the fuel depots. It's the guys that are contractors supplying all sorts of services to the coal mining industry. And can they then be replaced in renewables? South Africa says it's got a plan. But there's little faith in implementation thereof. And I have to say this, Becky, you know, seeing the faces of the people that I spoke to, they already are living in dire circumstances. Many people uh, support 7 to 10 family members and there is this huge fear you know when I was living in the coal mining sector in the industry um, my dad had a little shop and when the coal uh, mine reached end of life they demolished everything and we lost everything right but we were able to recover a lot of these people face demolitions of where they live so if a coal mine shuts down what will happen what is the plan and that, that is the big question that the National Union of Mine Workers has and the people on the ground as well. So it's fascinating, isn't it? The point being, you know, you can you can get world leaders, um, leaders from the yeah. world of business and finance all gathered at a, a, at a summit like this, as they did in Glasgow, committing to the end of uh, coal as a dirty fuel, as it were. Yeah. But the impact on people, the promises are made, the promises are out there. You know, this is about growth. This is about jobs going forward in a sort of, you know, a, a, a world of energy transition but the, but the issues are really really real and the one uh, you know um, African uh, finance corporation uh, head executive said to me Eleni how are you going to ask 
a woman or a family to not chop down a tree mm. to cook for their family or not burn coal mm. to cook for their family. Here's a number. 600 million people in Africa right now don't have access to reliable electricity. Mm. So you've got energy poverty that needs to be married with the climate emergency and finding solutions mm. that will in some way mm. lead to a better and cleaner mm. and greener future. And we need money. That's the money. That's the money issue that comes up. The challenges are very real. Eleni, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Julia, global leaders in the world of business and finance have a very real challenge here against what is a very challenging backdrop of a war in Ukraine and the resultant energy crisis. So we hear more about energy security than we do about energy transition, right? The world needs to come up with some very real solutions to ensure the prospect of an energy transition that is affordable and, as Eleni pointed out, a realistic option. Uh, for people living in a country like South Africa. The challenges are very, very real. That's not to say that there aren't solutions out there. We've got to you know, drill down on those solutions and hold those who are providing them to account. Julia. Couldn't agree more. Vast challenges. And to your point, we don't talk enough about transition, never mind investing in renewables. It's about the, as Eleni was um, sort of beautifully pointing out, the, the challenges of getting from A to B. Um, both of you, thank you. And we'll be back with you later on in the show. For now, let's move on and talk about Ukraine. The mayor of Kyiv warning people to prepare for the complete loss of electricity, water and heating amid Russian missile attacks. People in cities across the country have had water and power supplies knocked out in recent weeks as Russian forces target key infrastructure. Officials are implementing scheduled blackouts today to conserve energy supplies. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz is across it and in Kyiv for us too. Um, Salma, good to have you with us. I saw President Zelensky saying around four and a half million people are still dealing with those blackouts as they try and repair infrastructure. And, and the big fear, as the Keith Mayer pointed out, is when they're knocked out again, it's just an ongoing battle. Yes, and many of those suffering are right here in the capital, right here in Kyiv. Uh, let me just explain to you the situation overall. For hours every day, families have no electricity, no power. There's these scheduled outages. They last three to four hours. They happen a couple of times a day. If there is a huge energy deficit, then they might extend those hours. So it's not uncommon to hear of a family going half a day without any energy, without any electricity to heat up their home or make a warm meal or light their living rooms. And what is concerning is what you've pointed out there. This infrastructure, the country's civilian infrastructure, is so fragile, so weak now that any missile that lands is going to cause really huge devastation. So authorities are preparing for the worst case scenario, essentially a complete collapse of the energy system if Russia continues to target the infrastructure. They're setting up emergency services, emergency spaces for families to go to in every single district. The mayor of Kyiv has even said if you have family that live outside the city with running electricity, maybe consider with staying with them for a while. He went so far to say as, as to say that he believes Russia wants Ukrainians to freeze to death this winter. And yes, you you absolutely can see that that's the motivation behind uh, the targeting of civilian infrastructure is really to ramp up the cost of civilian suffering, to really make sure that even far, far from the front lines, families really feel the impact of this war. But if you really take a step back, Julia, I think it also shows a sign of weakness from the Kremlin. The fact that civilian infrastructure is being targeted rather than focusing on the battlefield. That's why you hear so many Ukrainians say, yes, we are suffering. Yes, this is difficult, but we continue to stay together. This is only making us stronger in the face of these Russian assaults, Julia. 
yeah, hardening the resolve for now. CNN's Summer Abdelaziz in Kiev there for us. Thank you. Now, China's zero COVID policy taking a bite out of Apple. The company warning production of the latest iPhones will be temporarily impacted as its supplier Foxconn's factory continues to be under lockdown measures. Selena Wang joins us now on day eight, I believe now, of the 10 day quarantine in Beijing. Selena, you're almost there. Um, talk to us about what Apple is saying. We would expect there to be some impact on supplies given the challenges of operations within that Foxconn factory. But it, it, the backdrop here were hopes that we were talking about last week of perhaps some easing of those measures. Uh, the health ministry coming out over the weekend and saying uh, nothing's changing for now. Well, thanks, Julia, for reminding me. I just got a few days left. But look, what Apple is saying here is if you're planning to buy the new iPhone 14 Pro or Pro Max, well, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer to get those new products because the latest lineup of products are being impacted by these COVID restrictions in China. This doesn't come as a surprise given the lockdowns and the COVID situation in Zhengzhou, which is where Apple's biggest iPhone assembly facility is located, where analysts estimate that up to 85% of the iPhone capacity is running for that assembly. So Apple is saying that the capacity there has been significantly reduced. Apple here is really just the latest victim to China's zero COVID policies. Chinese businesses, global businesses, they are all being hit by this endless cycle of lockdowns, quarantines, mass testing, taking a massive and growing toll on the economy and on people's lives. And since mid-October, that factory in Zhengzhou has been struggling to deal with a COVID outbreak. Last week, we talked about those viral videos showing migrant workers fleeing the factory, trying to get away from those COVID restrictions, walking miles on highways to try and get back to their homes. And last week, authorities also imposed a seven-day lockdown over the area that houses that factory. So all of this putting huge pressure on Apple and its major supplier, Foxconn, right before this key holiday shop season. Now, we also talked about last week how there were these unfounded rumors that China was going to start to exit its zero COVID policy. Investors, they are desperate for any piece of good news that those rumors caused a big share jump. However, Authorities this weekend, they quashed those rumors. In a presser, they said China is unwaveringly sticking to zero COVID. We are seeing authorities double down on this policy with more lockdowns, more mass testing, more quarantines. Protests even breaking out in some areas, including Tibet and Lhasa Tibet, where they've been in lockdown for three months. This is continuing in year three of the pandemic. It means that China is a less attractive place for foreign investment. It means that this country is getting more and more isolated as well. Julia. Yeah, and pressuring growth and, of course, the knock-on impact to, to things like jobs and social cohesion. Challenged. Selena, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead, a dynamic duo fighting for a better world. While John Kerry pushes for progress at COP27, his daughter is working to strengthen health systems across Africa. Dr. Vanessa Kerry is up next. And later on the show, Twitter Terminal 2.0, or 20.0, depending on how you choose to look at it, after a dramatic big breakup, is Elon Musk trying to make up with some of Twitter's former staff? We'll discuss. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Fighting climate change is not just about saving the planet, it's also about protecting our health. The World Health Organization has reported that less than 1% of multilateral climate finance is currently directed to health-related projects. Well, our next guest says investing in health systems around the world is essential to economic and social well-being, as well as national security. And that includes protection against climate-related shocks by investing in our healthcare workforces. The WHO also estimates there will be a shortfall of 18 million health workers by 2030. Now, for the past 10 years, Sea Global Health has been working to strengthen those health systems. Since its founding, it has partnered with four countries, Malawi, Sierra Leone, Uganda and Zambia and 30 institutional partners. The organisation has placed over 200 physicians, nurse and midwife educators and taught nearly 28,000 trainees. And I'm pleased to say joining us now is Dr Vanessa Kerry, co-founder and CEO of Seed Global Health. She's also a critical care doctor and director of the Global Public Policy and Social Change Programme at Harvard Medical School. She also happens to be the daughter of former US Secretary of State John Kerry. Dr Kerry, Vanessa, wonderful to have you on the show. That was a bit of a long introduction. Forgive me, but I love the name, um, the idea of, of seeding communities across Africa with the information and, and knowledge and support to help them protect their communities. Just start there by explaining what you do and how it works. Well, thank you very much for having me join you, especially at this really critical moment in time. Seed Global Health was really founded to partner with governments and institutions in Africa to ensure that they have the strong, robust, robust just strong health systems they need to be able to meet the, the, the health challenges that they see. And so over the last decade, we have partnered with governments in sub-Saharan Africa and with hospitals and training institutions to train actually now close to 40,000 doctors, nurses, and midwives who are in service to close to... 72 million people across the continent. I mean, this is astonishing. And, and in all of these countries, based on your work with governments, with, um, I know, NGOs and, and those on the ground, it's the focus seems to be of similar things. And it comes down to um, a greater need for maternal care, for protection of newborns, protection of, of children, in certain cases as well, mental health. Just talk us through how you've honed in on some of the key priorities. Uh, of course, I, I think the reality is that it's 2022 and it is truly unacceptable. We have two such different standards of care in the world. A woman in Sierra Leone has 50 times the chance of dying in childbirth than a woman, say, in my home country of the United States. And we're fundamentally trying to change that. And so we do that by really identifying the most pressing health needs in the countries where we work, whether it is, uh, a, you know, pregnancy and childbirth, whether, whether it is a child under five and the health issues they see with diarrhea or pneumonia um, or malnutrition, whether it is trauma. Over, you know, the World Bank found in Uganda that over half the deaths in the country are from a failure of emergency and triage services. And so we support training a rising generation of health professionals that can not only provide high quality care, but can stay and continue to train so that we're really building out a network of healthcare providers that are in response to the people in these countries and can make sure that that woman in Sierra Leone doesn't die. And um, it's, it's really about, frankly, challenging the status quo that we have allowed to be really unacceptable for too long. 
just reiterate that statistic because it's just shocking. A woman in Sierra Leone, 50 times more likely to die giving birth than a, than a woman in the United States. Um, I think if that doesn't illustrate the importance of the work that you're doing, nothing will. I think, and, and actually it's becoming very clear if people are watching the video that we're showing, of the, the sheer quantity of women that are being shown here yeah. as, as healthcare workers. And there's sort of two ties here. There's the importance of um, sort of protecting many of the women in these situations with these healthcare emergencies. But it's also that two thirds of the healthcare workers themselves are women. So providing them with the essential skills and support in the work that they're doing helps tackle the gender divide in a, in a, in a completely different way and in a vitally important way. Absolutely. 70% of healthcare is provided by women. And so we are really talking about a gender equity opportunity. And women, I believe the statistic is about 3 billion of, of work in the healthcare sector goes unpaid. And so there's an opportunity by investing in training a health workforce and investing in formalizing the sector in countries around the world to be able to create jobs, to build economies, to create gender equity. And I think that it's, it, you know, most people don't realize, but there's very strong data between better health and better GDP growth and or whether a household lives above or below the poverty line. And a lot of that is tied to creating jobs for women. A lot of that is tied to making an investment in somebody's, their main asset, which is their ability to go to work. And if you're not healthy, you cannot go to work, you cannot care for your family. And so this uh, investments in health are, are truly, um, you know, for lack of a better analogy, a tide that lifts all boats. And, and there's a huge opportunity for us to recreate our world by investments in health. Yeah, it's, it's essential for a functioning society, for a, a, a healthy functioning society. And I don't just mean in, in health terms. Um, where do the educators come from? How long do they stay? Where does the financing come from? Because this is a critical part of it. If those that are imparting their knowledge and, and providing wisdom and experience to those that are working in these communities, just give us a sense of, of how all that works and crucially where the money comes from. We are deeply privileged that we partner with ministries of health, with governments in the places that we work, and we work together to identify faculty to fill the faculty shortages. I'm sure in many countries around the world, you will find that there is a doctor, nurse, a midwife, uh, health provider that came from another country. And in fact, it's estimated that there, you know, the, the brain drain of physicians and nurses has left huge gaps in these countries. And so we recruit folks to come back. They spend a year of their life serving alongside existing faculty to build out the faculty enough to be able to continue training um, and ensuring that there is high quality mentorship in a clinical setting. One of the things we do that's very different and that you just can't replace with telemedicine is that we teach at the bedside. And so when there is a breach birth, you actually have somebody to be with you to guide you how to do it. And then it happens again. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this time and time again, the power of saving lives what it does to transform people's sense of hope, of optimism, of understanding of what can be achieved. And so we do this entirely through philanthropic funding. We, um, all of our funding comes from foundations and people who are willing to be on this journey and to really support it, as well as now increasingly, we are building a coalition of folks that really are trying to give to this bigger effort writ large. We've just announced um, in September, the Clinton Global Initiative, a $100 million commitment that we need to raise and work towards and with, with some of our partners like AMREF and others to really be transformative and to invest in these health systems to make them stronger, more resilient. Even after COVID-19, 
only 60% of countries have strong emergency preparedness response. That means 40% of our countries are left completely vulnerable to another global pandemic. We have a lot of work that we need to do, and we are going to be we deeply believe that there is no such thing as too ambitious for this moment that we're in and that it is critically important that we invest in health to address the whole range of issues that we face, be it migration, pandemics, um, and the ability to have a healthy workforce that can be investing in, a, in our better world. Yeah, I have about a minute left, but I mean, everything that you just said there in terms of the challenges are all exacerbated by the impact of climate change, that the need for migration, lower labour, productivity, um, communities struggling to uh, take care of themselves, never mind, uh, you know, the need to be able to afford or pay for adequate, decent health care. Um, Vanessa, just tie it to your reason for being in COP and what you hope to achieve there. Absolutely. Thank you. I am here at COP because um, there is going to be a huge rise in death and suffering from climate change. We don't do anything about it. And the ability to have a health-centered investments in our climate response are going to be critically important. And the workforce is critically needed to address that growing burden of disease that we're going to already see, um, that we already see, 250,000 deaths a year, 216 million people estimated to start migrating because of some of these problems. Right. And so we have a critical need to ensure that we are prepared and able to um, really see health as integrally tied to the, to the climate crisis as well. Yeah, fundamental to saving lives. Um, Dr. Vanessa Carey, great to have you on. And I no doubt we will speak again soon. Please come back and talk to us again. The co-founder and CEO of Seed Global Health there. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move and Global Investors out with their vote on the state of the U.S. stock market ahead of tomorrow's all-important U.S. midterm election vote to decide who controls Congress. In the meantime, U.S. stocks currently higher, as you can see there, in early trade. The bulls hoping for some follow-through after Friday's solid gains. Stocks, if you remember, got an end-of-the-week boost from that solid U.S. jobs market report. Investors perhaps positioning themselves post-midterm elections when stocks tend to do well historically, at least. Morgan Stanley today saying that it pays to stay bullish as voting gets underway. That said, we've got a major consumer inflation print coming on Thursday that will also help dictate the market direction, and of course, the direction the Federal Reserve heads in too. Now, in other news, reunited and it feels so good. Call it a case of a breakup to make up or fired to rehired. We shouldn't really joke, but reports say Twitter hopes to lure back some of the thousands of workers that were shown the door last week. All this as Elon Musk pushes pause on Twitter's new blue check verification feature. Rahel Solomon joins us on this. Rahel, I can't keep up, so I'm glad I've got you here to um, to do that. Talk to me about what we think happened here. He's moved so fast on making changes. It's perhaps not surprising some people will let go that they actually need. Mm. Julia, exactly. I think this really underscores the pace at which things are happening, because as you might remember, it was just October 27th that Elon Musk actually took control of Twitter. And so some 10 days later, I mean, uh, Twitter, of course, has let go its top executive. Elon Musk has let go some of the top executives at Twitter. We know half the staff was laid off as of Friday. And then these reports surfaced just days later that apparently Elon Musk and some of the top at Twitter actually want some of these folks to come back. And it is unclear at this point, Julia, if that's because these people were not supposed to be let go to begin with 
or if it was a big, oops, actually, we really might need you. Now, I can tell you that we here at CNN have reached out to Twitter, but here's something that's interesting. Folks who we have communicated with before, who we have worked with before, well, those emails are bouncing back, implying uh, that they too may have been let go. So it really just speaks to uh, the dizzying pace at which things are happening. And it is, of course, unsettling perhaps to the employees, both uh, presently and former, but also advertisers. And you're starting to hear big advertisers start to pump the brakes and pull back as folks wonder what is going on inside of Twitter. Some new features have also been unveiled, but then they've been pulled back, including, as you mentioned, Julia, uh, the blue check verification program for $8 a month. Uh, That on Saturday was unveiled in a a launch and an update. But then uh, we got word here at CNN that the sprint to our launch continues. But some folks may see us making updates because we are testing and pushing changes in real time, Julia. Again, in real time. So things are happening very quickly at Twitter. And I would argue for some perhaps a bit too quickly. Yeah, I think for many, quite frankly. And, and Rahel, to your point, that's the, one of the joys, I guess, of being a private company is that you don't need to have such a substantial communications team because mm. you're not communicating with investors. But um, it would be good to have someone. Uh, Rahel Solomon, thank you for that. OK, coming up, we'll take you back to COP27 in Egypt, CNN's extensive coverage at the UN Climate Summit with Becky Anderson. That's next. Welcome back to Egypt, where the COP27 UN Climate Summit is underway at the crossroads of the Middle East and Africa. Providing adequate funding for the global south to transition to cleaner energy is top of the agenda here, as is the issue of compensating poorer countries for the loss and damage caused by this climate crisis. Well, in his speech at today's opening ceremony, Former U.S. Vice President Al Gore strongly criticized leaders in developed nations. Have a listen. We have a credibility problem, all of us. We're talking and we're starting to act, but we're not doing enough. It is a choice to continue this pattern of destructive behavior. We have other choices. Well, taking action now, making those choices now, not next year, not 10 years from now, couldn't be more critical. Never before seen rain in Pakistan, placing a third of the country underwater and killing over 1,000 people. And climate change likely caused the disaster. Frankly, the people of Pakistan, the citizens of Pakistan are paying the price in their lives, in their livelihoods, for the industrialization of rich countries. Data from Oxfam shows that the richest 1% of the world is responsible for twice as many carbon emissions as the poorest 50% in the last century. Yet the poorest are often left to bear the brunt of climate change and pay a steep price. Pakistan's biblical flooding has reignited the question of loss and damage to compensate developing countries for climate disasters. While a little late, the EU and the US say they now support discussions on financial compensation, a sign that the tone may shift at the COP27 climate conference in Egypt. Simply put, with respect to finance, 
we developed countries need to make good on the finance goals that we have set. So Sharm el-Sheikh is another milestone for measurement, for accountability, and for focus. And here's why that matters. Without adequate financial investment, developing countries can't pivot away from fossil fuels. But there has been some progress. Take the United States and the United Arab Emirates, for example who recently signed a partnership aimed at investing billions of dollars in clean energy industries, particularly in emerging economies. The White House said, quote, To help bridge the gap, the two countries intend to work together to prioritize commercial projects in developing and low-income countries, as well as provide them technical and financial assistance. Poorer countries will want to see similar pledges being made in Shamal Sheikh where organizers have vowed to make climate financing a key focus. Climate finance is insufficient. Um, I would say as well, unfair and inefficient. The reductionist approach that misled us all as global community, that climate change and sustainability means only decarbonization and dealing with the emissions had been misleading. But we cannot ignore the impact of the decades and actually centuries of mismanagement of the uh, nature endowments, harm to climate and the planet. If we're not addressing these problems, we're going to be seeing more instability around the world. What we need really to see this time, that we need to shift from the weather and when questions into the how. And the how is all about finance. Finance that's so important for countries like Pakistan, which emits less than 1% of the world's planet-warming gases, but is now faced with a $40 billion bill. We are on a highway to hell. That the ominous warning from the UN Secretary General here earlier as he appealed for further efforts towards net zero goals. But as my report just suggested, it's not just about emissions cutting targets. It's about a lot more. It's about financing. The world is falling short on the financial commitments made, for example, in 2015 and the really contentious issue of how to compensate poorer nations for loss and damage. Well, I put those two issues to European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. I started by asking her if the funding that's coming through is insufficient. It is insufficient, so we have to accelerate. And this um, COP27 now is about implementation. Um, Here my very clear messages from the European Union, we are on track. We have cast in law our climate targets, not just put targets out, but cast them in law. Minus 55 percent till 2030 and climate neutral 2050. Mm. And now we have to accelerate. We've put forward, I think, the most ambitious legislative package now worldwide to achieve these goals. In 2015, the world signed up to $100 billion a year fund for the poorer countries um, because there was an understanding that they needed financing on adaptation and mitigation. Two questions. The world hasn't ponied up that money. The US is way behind. That's wrong, isn't it? It is wrong. We we have to do more. Europe is doing its fair share, $23 billion of euros. We've said we're going to pledge that last year. We did it. And we're going to give more than 23 billion uh, euros this year too. But you're right. I mean, there's still a gap. And this gap has to be filled. 
Loss and damage is uh, the phrase that viewers will hear a lot about here. Um, compensating poorer countries for the loss and damage caused by climate change. Pakistan is the poster child in the most awful way for that. A thousand lives lost this year, 40 billion uh, the price of damage. The EU and other developed countries are frankly not interested in engaging, in engaging in a conversation about loss and damage. Why? I think loss and damage the discussion about is very important. And therefore, I'm happy that it's an agenda point this time at COP27. It wasn't so far. There's a lot of work ahead of us to define what is loss and damage and then to look into the possible funds uh, to compensate. Mm, that was Ursula von der Leyen speaking to me earlier. David McKenzie is here with me in Egypt. And if COP26 was about ambition, David, we are promised that COP27 uh, will be about implementation. Uh, but it's frankly the failure of the world's um, industrialized nations to pony up at this point, which has caused this sort of trust deficit from the global south. This is a meeting in Africa. The next meeting is in the UAE. We've got you know, a region which couldn't be at more risk from climate change at the forefront of the climate conversation for the next couple of years. What will success look like from this meeting? You know, I've been speaking, Becky, to climate scientists and activists, and you hear the same thing over and over. Action, action, action. Talk isn't going to cut it. People need to make concrete decisions now at this COP and into the months ahead. How is the rich world's uh, nations going to try and fund the impact of climate? Because the climate catastrophe is with us right now. You've been reporting on the Pakistan floods. You see the Horn of Africa, East Africa, millions of people facing starvation. Now, climate scientists now have the facts to show that it's made worse by the climate change that we are facing. And also, in some cases, like the heat waves in Europe, it's made possible at all. Those would not have happened if we didn't see the warming that we've been seeing. So what is needed now are concrete promises from rich nations to pony up the cash, as you say. David McKenzie with me here um, in uh, Egypt. David, thank you very much indeed. And it's important to point out that there are some solutions out there. If we're going to win the fight against climate change, we need to get creative. And these solutions do exist. For example, the US and the UAE recently signed a clean energy initiative that will provide $100 billion globally to help catalyze public private funding. But it is that public-private funding that is needed so critically at this point. We will continue uh, to uh, discuss this with those who are gathered here and try and get some accountability from those who hold the purse strings. Julia will be back after this short break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Global travel is back in full swing following the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the industry's biggest gatherings is kicking off in London as we speak. The world travel market bringing together some of the biggest names in business. And of course, it doesn't get bigger than our Richard Quest, who is there for us too. Richard, much to discuss. Climate, the World Cup. Is the travel boom sustainable? Talk us through your conversations. And that's exactly the situation here. Look, we're in, we decided today, appropriately, we'll come to Asia and Pacific part. The whole place is booming, to be honest. Europe particularly is very busy. The Caribbean is very busy. Asia Pacific is picking up. Indonesia, all these areas. The Middle East as well, because the pent-up demand, coupled with retained savings that people have, means that planes are full and everybody's travelling. Can they do it sustainably? At the moment, everybody has the right jargon and the right language and says, yes, they can do it sustainably, but they're just glad the business is back. One country in particular... Qatar. Next week, of course, starts the World Cup. One and a half million visitors will be in Qatar. I asked the Minister of Tourism, what's going to happen? All those facilities, all the sustainability, how does the tourism industry develop? Qatar is a modern city and the World Cup obviously will help us to change some of those misconceptions. The people will go like, wow, those football stadiums are better than what I have in my home country. Same goes, we talked about the infrastructure. So some of those misconceptions we will address during the World Cup and the region needs to address it. Now, that was the chief operating officer, I should say, of the uh, Visit Qatar, the Qatari uh, Tourism Authority. So, Julia, what you have here, uh, delight to be back in business aware of a need to do it sustainably, but frankly, they're just trying to get the economy, the tourism economy, uh, back on the road. We have one minute. Which Do they think it is sustainable or are they worried? Dark clouds on the horizon. Recession will take its toll, but people will just trade down. They will go yeah. uh, low cost instead of full service airlines, stay in cheaper hotels. The will, and the, the will and the wish to travel is there. They'll just do it in a different way. Yeah, the will's sustainable, even if uh, some of the cost pressures will weigh. Richard, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. He's there at the World Travel Market in London, and we'll be back throughout programming. And that's it for the show. If you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, connect the world with Becky Anderson at COP27 is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.